I recognize some of you. I see we have a good contingent from uh, disciple makers here. Uh, even Micah made his way down from Ephraim. It's so nice to have you here. Um, I've been able to visit uh, Christ Alone Fellowship several times on a Sunday morning and always enjoy uh, my time here. Um, I would say of, of all the people that I've met here, I, I run into uh, Lynette more than anybody else because at pastor's events, she's there with Evrens, and so I keep seeing her. And uh, it, was, uh, it was at her uh, initiative that we got this thing planned and started. So uh, I have a wife. She's not here tonight. She just had a procedure on her heart yesterday at the hospital, so she's home recovering. But uh, I've been married for almost 34 years, and uh, we have three grown married children out of the house supporting themselves. Uh, thankful for that. And uh, just had our seventh grandchild born two weeks ago, so we are, we are very blessed. Uh, all three of my kids live in Pennsylvania, one here in Lancaster, one in the Philadelphia area. My son lives there, and he's going to school at Westminster Seminary and is the uh, youth leader at Faith Bible Fellowship Church in Harleysville. And then my oldest daughter, Kate, is married to a pastor uh, up in central Pennsylvania, and uh, she has four kids, and so we're thankful to, to be in Lancaster. We've lived here 10 years. Uh, previously, we lived in the Philadelphia area, and I taught at a seminary there, and for the last 10 years, I've taught at Lancaster Bible College Capital Seminary. Uh, before that, I was a pastor in, in my home state of Connecticut. My wife and I grew up there, and I uh, pastored a church there in the city of New London, Connecticut. It was an urban revitalization church plant, and um, I thought I would do that all my life, and then 21 years ago, God called me out of pastoring and into teaching. Uh, just a little bit about me. I was not born into a Christian home, neither was my wife. We met in high school. Uh, we were both born into severely dysfunctional Irish Catholic families. And uh, both of our fathers were uh, serial adulterers, and I, we have uh, uh, brothers, half-brothers by other women. And so our, our lives early on were wrecked by sin. And uh, by God's grace, when we were in elementary school, uh, first my mom and then her dad, uh, came to faith in Christ. God restored families and, and changed families. And uh, so by the time I was nine years old, I put my faith in Christ, was baptized, and uh, saw the radical change in my mom's life, not so much in my dad's life, but in my mom's life, and knew that the gospel was real and that it was the only power of God into salvation. And so by the time I was 12, I was one of those weird kids. I knew I wanted to be a pastor. And I had my mind set on that, went off to Bible college, uh, graduated, uh, got married right after my wife graduated a year later, went off to seminary, and uh, became a pastor shortly after that when I was 28 years old. And uh, all my life from the time I had become a Christian and the time I had dedicated my life to serve God and felt the call of God upon me, I always had a burden for the lost. And I never could escape the frustration of feeling that no matter what I did, no matter how many evangelism classes I took, I just could not figure out how to effectively witness to people. Uh, so when I became a pastor, I thought, okay, surely God is now going to give me some special anointing, and I will know how to share the gospel effectively with people just by becoming a pastor. And I was sorely disappointed. Uh, people came to Christ in our ministry, but my personal ability to evangelize and talk with unbelievers 
just was no better than it had ever been. And I had had lots of evangelism training, had been through all kinds of courses. Uh, I, if someone came up to me and said, you know, I need to be saved, how can I be saved? I was ready. But if I started talking to someone and they raised objections of the Christian faith, I didn't know how to handle that. And I had these deep-seated questions that no one I asked could ever seem to answer, deep-seated epistemological questions of, how do we know that we're right? How do we know that the scriptures are true? Uh, it's not that I doubted them myself, but I thought, I don't know if I can defend them in a conversation. Uh, so in 2002, when I was 35 years old, we left our church uh, and moved back to Pennsylvania, and I started teaching at the seminary where I had gone uh, 10 years before, and I was teaching systematic theology, and um, still didn't have any answers for those questions of engagement with unbelievers, so I started taking classes at Westminster Seminary for my PhD and started in New Testament, didn't really enjoy that, um, and I thought, I'm just going to... I'm just going to audit an apologetics class. You know, it's always interested me at the time, you know, every time Robbie Zacharias was within 200 miles, I'd say to my wife, hey, honey, how about we get away for the weekend? <laughs> she said, oh, that sounds great. And then she'd find herself at a conference <laughs> learning apologetics and say, that's not quite what I was thinking of with a, a weekend away. So I thought I'll audit this class and wasn't really expecting to have my life completely changed. And in the first few weeks of that class, all these questions I had had all these years that no one I asked could answer were being answered. And as I was sitting in class, I started to experience several emotions. First one was anger. Like, why have the Presbyterians been keeping this to themselves all these years? I grew up in a Baptist setting, and I'm thinking, they know this, and they didn't tell us about this? Um, and then there was a deep regret that I had not learned this earlier in my life. And, and then the third emotion was a, a sense of resolve. Like, if, if I'm going to do anything with the rest of my life, what I want to do is train people to, to know what I'm knowing. And uh, a few weeks into that class, when I was just beginning to learn apologetics, um, I, uh, I, I was taking a doctoral level class as well, and I thought, all right, I've got five hours, I've got to go get my work done. In PhD studies, you read about 500 pages a week, and you've got to write 20 or 30 pages of summary. It is overwhelming. So I grabbed a bunch of books, went to a coffee shop in Lansdale, north of Philadelphia, had five hours, and I thought, all right, I'm just going to hammer out this reading and write these write these summaries and, and get going. And, I, and I, I'll tell you the story that I, uh, I tell in the introduction of my book. I brought a few copies of my book. If you're interested, they're $12 each. Um, and this basically is what came out of my plan to say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life teaching Christians how to, how to defend and share their faith well. So I'm, I'm working away deeply in study, and this woman comes and sits down next to me. And uh, she starts doing this. <sighs> <sighs> and I realized she wants to talk. I mean, we're sitting really close to each other, and I begin to talk to God. I say, Lord, I don't have time for this right now. I'm studying apologetics and how to engage unbelievers with the gospel. I don't have time to talk to this woman. And I'm arguing with the Lord 10 minutes. She's just huffing and puffing, and I finally realize she is not going to quit. So I close my book put it down, I turned to her and I said, sounds like you're having a rough day. Oh yeah, you wouldn't believe my insurance company won't pay for this procedure. And she went on for a little while and I really didn't know what to say. I was just starting to learn apologetics. So 
I said, well, that sounds really frustrating. Uh, I'll pray for you. And her head about came off her shoulder. She turned to me like this. What are you, some kind of religious nut? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe God answers prayer. And then I began to do what we'll learn next time on the 26th. I just began to ask strategic questions. I began to say things like, so uh, what's your religious background? I, I use that one a lot. Well, I'm an atheist. I said, oh, you don't believe God exists? That's right. And then she paused for a second. She said, well, who knows? Maybe God exists, but I don't know if he exists. I don't know if anybody can. I said, oh, you're an agnostic. She goes, yes, that's what I am. <laughs> and then before I could say anything else, she said, but you know, I kind of believe that God is everywhere and in everything. I said, oh, you're a pantheist. She goes, yes, that's what I am. <laughs> and I just, I just started asking questions. So what makes you think God is in everywhere or God is everywhere and in everything. And uh, I just began using what little I knew at that time, and, and she starts to engage me in conversation. And she's talking and answering my questions, and a little while later, this guy came and sat down next to her and joined the conversation. I thought they were together. And uh, finally, I turned to him, I said, are, are you together? And they looked at each other, and he said, no, I just heard what you were talking about, and it sounded interesting. I wanted to join the conversation. So I said, well, what's your religious background? He said, well, I was... I was raised in a cult. I said, ooh, tell me about that. I got excited. And so he started telling me about all the bizarre things he grew up with. And I was just questioning them, weaving in the Christian gospel, challenging them on the things that they said, all things we're going to learn in the next two, two meetings together. And this conversation went on for two and a half hours. And you have to understand, I'd never had a conversation with anyone about the gospel for more than five or ten minutes my entire life. And so while this is going on, internally I'm thinking, this is amazing, this works. And at the end of the two and a half hours, the guy stood up, he looked at his watch, he said, oh, I've got to go, I, I didn't mean to stay so long. And then he said this, he said, I don't even know what I believe anymore. Everything I believed when I walked in here, you took away from me. And I realized this, this has powerful uh, implications this this way of sharing the gospel of defending the faith so that's what we're going to do over the next few uh, next couple of months uh, the plan is to meet today on the 26th of May and then June 8th and 22nd and um, our goal then is to lay a solid foundation for you to be able to engage any person you meet anywhere in the world regardless of their spiritual background and to do it effectively uh, so I want to encourage you be thinking as we go through this about people in your life, neighbors, friends, co-workers, classmates, family members, uh, because if we go through all this teaching and you don't actually use it, put it into practice, and, and make an effort to reach unbelievers, it will just be a waste, quite frankly. So I always challenge people, pray that God gives you within the next two weeks an opportunity to, to put into practice some of these things we're going to learn. So if you have your Bibles, turn them to 1 Peter chapter 3. Make sure you bring your Bibles each time because unlike the way some apologetics is done, we're actually going to use the Bible, uh, which is a core principle of the uh, type of apologetics that, that we do. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I've got my, got my Westminster Shepherd nice. here. Yeah. Yeah. All the big names here. I like that. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to uh, basically just exposit the, the fundamental foundational passage in the New Testament on apologetics. 
Uh, and then in the second hour, yes, there is a second hour, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, and then we'll take some questions. Uh, we'll plan to do that. Um, uh, I'll teach and then take some questions. And then what we'll do, starting in the third time we gather, we'll start doing some role play. Uh, I'll play the part of an unbeliever and challenge you, or vice versa, if, if anybody wants to come in with a persona. I do this with my students at Lancaster Bible College. I have 12 different characters I play, and each one uh, presents themselves differently and, and throws up different arguments against the Christian faith, and the students have to respond to that. So that's always helpful to see, ah, here's what it looks like when you actually do this. So 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, or 13, Peter starts by saying, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, Peter, lots of people. I mean, the Christians he's writing to are undergoing persecution. They've been scattered, driven from their homes, suffering incredible persecution. So I can imagine them hearing this and saying, what are, you, are you kidding, Peter? There's lots of people out to harm us. But Peter's point is ultimately no one can harm you unless God gives them permission. And God has determined that he's going to send the gospel throughout the world. So we can't live in fear. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And now notice verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or give an answer, some translations say. That is the Greek word apologia, from which we get apologetics. It's used here. It's used twice in Philippians 1. It's used repeatedly at the end of the book of Acts when Paul talks about uh, his defense of his of his faith and defense of the resurrection of Christ. Mm. So the, the concept of apologetics is all through the Bible. And can I tell you that? I never heard that once mm. until I was in my late 30s in my doctoral studies at Westminster. No one ever mentioned that apologetics was in the Bible. Mm. Uh, no one ever mentioned the fact that all through the scripture there's this recurring theme of God defending his glory, beginning in the garden when God confronts Adam and Eve and posts two angels at the garden so they cannot come in, all the way to the end when God defeats Satan uh, and displays his glory for all to see. So the scripture really is an apologetic text, and, and George up here has an apologetic study Bible. We shouldn't really even need that because the entire Bible is about apologetics. <laughs> which is what every professor says in their area of teaching. Mine is the most important area, right? The theologians think theirs is, the New Testament guys, the Old Testament guys. Clearly they're all wrong. The Bible is primarily an apologetics <laughs> book, God defending his glory. <laughs> so uh, Peter says, every one of us should be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Mm. So we're going to talk about how we should go about doing this. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, but when people say awful, untrue things about you, your good works in Christ will put them to shame, your good behavior in Christ. So if you have your handout, let's start at the top of the handout here. What is apologetics? Well, first of all, it means to give an answer. To give an answer uh, and that's all that we're called to do by the way if you notice in this passage this passage is not written to pastors and professors it is written to every Christian so think about this with me some of you may have extensive experience in apologetics you've listened to debates online you've read William Lane Craig and you've read um, Lee Strobel and you've read all these great books and 
And uh, you've said, um, boy, I, that's great, but I don't think I myself could do that. Well, here's the challenge I have for you. There is a place. Hi. Hi. Good to see you guys, former students at LBC. Um, there is a place for academic apologetics, you know, those high-level debates. But what we're going to learn is what I believe this scripture text is teaching. If apologetics is only for the super-intellectuals, which I'm not one, by the way, then this verse shouldn't be in the Bible. And if our, if our approach to apologetics can only be accomplished by someone with advanced degrees in philosophy and science, then we're not doing what the Bible says here, because this is written to every believer, right? And God never commands something that he doesn't equip us to do. So the approach we're going to learn is a very bottom-shelf, uh, personal conversation with unbelievers approach that anyone can do. And so I want to encourage you, don't think, oh yeah, you know, Pastor Lois really needs this or, you know, <laughs> others. No, this, this is for you, and my hope is that you'll be encouraged, that you'll say at the end of this seminar tonight and each week to say, I could do that. Amen. That's the way it ought to be. And then to begin to think about people in your life, like, who can I, who can I talk to? Who can I approach? My neighbors, my coworkers, my friends, my, uh, my acquaintances. So it begins with giving an answer. It also means to clear yourself of false charges. That is, as Peter says here, so that when you are slandered, your good those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then thirdly, it means to defend yourself in a court of law. So basically, the idea there is if you're going to accuse of something, your defense attorney is supposed to present reasoned arguments, right? So let's say tomorrow morning you wake up and you pick up the newspaper or your, your uh, social media feed comes up and, and there's a headline, local pastor, uh, Juan Carlos Morales arrested for robbing 18 banks, mm -hmm. right? I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Some of you would be like, that does not surprise me at all, right? Others of you would say, I thought he was perfect and sinless. I just can't imagine that it could be. So let's say he goes to court and he gets a defense attorney. And the prosecution lays out all of its evidence. And the, the state rests, and then the defense attorney stands up, and his only defense is this. Your Honor, couldn't have been my client. Um, he, he loves people. He takes the time to stop and smell the roses. Uh, you know, he finds stray puppies and helps them find, like, those are not good defenses for the fact that he did not rob this bank. You want the, you want the defense attorney to come and say, Your Honor, it couldn't have been my client. The man who robbed these banks had a lot of hair and was very handsome. So clearly, this is not what I defended, right? In other words, you want him to present evidence that is incontrovertible, right? That is a good defense. And what Peter's calling every one of us to do is to prepare ourselves, and it does take preparation, when someone challenges us about our faith. How can you believe that there's only one way? That is so narrow-minded. Right. Mm. Do, do you think everyone else besides Christians, all the billions of people in the world are going to hell? That's what you think? How can you believe in a good, all-powerful God when there's so much suffering in the world? Mm. So your God couldn't do any better than this? Mm. You, you believe in a, 
And a 2,000-year-old book, you're basing your life on it? How foolish. Don't you know Bart Ehrman at the University of North Carolina says there's 400,000 errors in the Greek New Testament? And you're, you're trusting in that? Mm. See, if, if we are talking with people and bringing up our faith, these kind of things are going to come up. Or as we'll talk about, I think, in our third time together, I could never believe in your God because my sister is gay or transgender, and I know what the Bible says about that, or I know what Christians say about that. So in, the, in, the, in June, we're going to deal with specific issues like the historical reliability of the Bible. We're going to deal with um, the LGBTQ question. We're going to deal with the problem of evil and suffering. And the truth is, if you try to share the gospel with someone, one of these issues is going to come up. Right. So this is why we need apologetics to be able to give an answer. Here's another definition. Apologetics is simply the art of persuasion. We do this already, don't we? You find a great restaurant. You see a great movie. Um, you have a great experience. You tell everyone about it. You've got to go, man. You've got to go see this play at the Fulton. You've got to go try this restaurant. I was sitting at a dentist's office uh, uh, a couple years ago, and I was reading a book called, um, I think it was something like Ordinary People. And there was a guy sitting across from me. He's like, oh, is that the, is that the novel that, um, that spawned the movie? It, it was a book on evangelism, actually. And I said, no. And he said, oh, have you ever seen that movie? And this guy, I didn't know him from Adam, begins evangelizing me about this movie that was made in the 1980s. And he went on for five or ten minutes. And I thought, isn't it interesting that he has no, no vested stake in this movie, and yet he's trying to convince me I must see this movie. See, we evangelize all the time. We seek to persuade. Mm -hmm. And Peter's saying we ought to use what Christ has done for us in salvation, the resources God has given us by giving us a historical faith rooted in historical events and the miraculous resurrection of Jesus. We ought to have that same passion and desire. And uh, sometimes that lights me on fire and I go talk to people and other times I pass up opportunities. Mm. And so part of what we need is we need the community of faith to be encouraging one another. You know, right. brother or sister, when was the last, have you been talking to anybody about Christ? Mm. Let's covenant together that every month we're going to get together and we're going to share and we're going to pray for each other for these people that we meet. We need this. Because yeah. so many times people come to my seminars they listen, their confidence goes way up, like, yes, I'm going to do this, and then it starts to leak. Mm. You know, has that ever happened before to you? Mm. And if you don't talk to someone about, if you talk to someone about Christ, it will go back up. Mm -hmm. There's never been an instance where I've been sharing the gospel or, or defending the faith where I've not walked away on cloud nine. Like, oh, man, I, give me someone else, Lord. Give me someone else. Mm -hmm. And we need, to, we need to realize that we can persuade. What about evangelism? Apologetics is a natural part of evangelism in which objections of the gospel are overcome by means of reason and persuasion. That is, I don't think you can evangelize without being prepared to answer questions. When my mom first came to Christ in the early 1970s, living in Connecticut, almost everyone you meet, you met, would have been liberal Protestant Roman Catholic. They already believed in the scriptures. They already believed Jesus died on the cross. But they believed salvation was through good works. So you didn't have to know a lot. You just had to share the gospel with them, show them in the Bible where, where it said grace not works, and people were getting saved. We don't live in that world anymore. And this is why a lot of the techniques of evangelism that work so well in the 60s, 70s, and 80s don't work anymore. Because we live in a very pluralistic world and a very antagonistic world. 
This is my favorite definition of apologetics. It is premeditated evangelism. Nice. Right? We know what premeditated murder is. Someone makes plans and they, 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 they think through, you know, what do I need to do? How can I cover it up? And can, where can I catch that person? How am I going to do it? Apologetics is simply thinking ahead of time. What questions might I be asked? What are the big questions in our world today? And how do I come prepared to, to give an answer if they ask me those questions? So notice in this text, the starting point of apologetics is a settled assurance that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for every person. Peter says, in your hearts, first step, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, set apart Christ as Lord. Is he Lord of your life? Hmm. Or is money? Or is fear of your parents' disapproval? Or is, um, you know, desire to accomplish something? There's all kinds of things that can replace Christ as Lord in our hearts. But the other aspect of this is we have to have this um, confidence that what I believe is true, which means I need to know scripture, I need to know sound doctrine, I need to be deeply rooted in my faith. Uh, so this means that I am confident that no other belief system reconciles a person to God. Have you ever met someone and you think, they have it all, they have it all together, they're spiritual, they talk about praying, you know, they're, they're doing well financially, their kids are well behaved, uh, they have a nice house, nice job, like really what do they need? I, I've fallen into that before. Um, probably the most intimidating thing to me is, is a businessman in an expensive suit. Because I grew up, my dad was a stonemason. We grew up out in the woods, we started our cars with a screwdriver. I mean, we lived basic, basic country people kind of life. So what intimidates me? Someone who's very wealthy and powerful. And sometimes you meet people like that, and, and each of us will have someone that we think, oh, I don't know if I can connect to this person. But I have to be reminded what Scripture says. Unless they have Christ, it doesn't matter what else they have. Their greatest need is Christ. No other object of worship is real and true. Are you convinced of that? That Allah is a deception. That the Hindu gods and goddesses are not real. Like, do we have firm confidence that our God is the only true God? And uh, are we willing to tell people, hey, listen, what you believe is, is not the truth? And that every person you meet needs the life that Jesus gives more than they need anything else. Amen. You know, think about every person you know. Think about unbelievers in your life. The way God sees them as a desperate sinner under his condemnation, headed toward... Uh, divine judgment unless they hear and believe the gospel. Like if we're convinced of that, then we will say, Lord, I'm scared, I don't know what to say, but my neighbor needs to hear about Christ more than I need to feel comfortable in my own, in my own home and in my own uh, zone of comfort. Mm. So what is the best way to become an apologist? Get a master's degree in philosophy, right? Uh, go to school and learn science. You can answer all those evolution questions. Now listen, if you have some of that background, that's great. But what you really need is a foundation in the scriptures and in sound doctrine. You know that, and I tell you, 90% of your apologetics is done right there because it all boils down to their misconceptions about who God is, their arguments against the Christian faith. So you've got to know the scriptures. Secondly, confidence comes from preparation. Uh, Peter goes on to say, 
always being prepared to make a defense. Uh, when I was growing up, my family, we didn't take expensive vacations. We went camping. And my dad was a terrible camper. Um, because at the end of last camping season, we got home, and it had rained on the camping trip. My dad would take the tent. It was all bundled up. He'd throw it in the barn out back. The fishing rods were placed leaning up against the barn to be out there all winter long. And whenever we wanted to go camping, we had to start this search. My dad said, would say, okay, we're leaving 9 o'clock in the morning to go camping. 8 o'clock, we'd start searching for everything. We'd find the tent and start to open it up, and you'd smell the mold and the mildew from last year because it was packed up wet. And you'd try to peel that, that material back, and it would just, like, have that wretched smell. And I loved camping growing up, but we never did it well until I met people who really knew how to camp. When they would go camping, they'd get home, and they would spend hours cleaning everything that they had used camping. They'd set up the tent and sweep it out and air it out and fold it carefully. They put everything in bins, so when they wanted to camp, they would simply come along, pull all these bins out of their garage to get in the car and go. Preach it, brother. Yep. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, that is the way to camp. Well, here's the truth, is this passage is commanding every one of us as believers to invest time and money and effort to learn answers. Amen. And folks, we live in a day, it's an embarrassment of apologetics riches. Mm -hmm. um, I buy most apologetics books that come out, but I've, I've stopped trying anymore. There's easily 250, 300 good books on apologetics just written in the last 25 years. Like there's no way to keep up with it all. There's websites with hundreds and hundreds of articles. If we don't know how to defend our faith, guess whose fault that is? It's ours. Now, there's other things to study. Uh, I always tell people, don't, don't read apologetics nonstop. Take some time, read some really good theology. Take some time in the scriptures. Read some other things. But the truth is, the answers to these questions that we're longing to know are, are easily available. And uh, it's just a matter of saying, Lord, do I love my lost neighbor, my lost friend enough to invest time so that I can effectively engage them with the gospel? I need to have a mindset of preparedness to speak the truth. How many times do we pass up opportunities? I could tell you an hour of stories of times I've passed them up. Most recently, last March, I was on a plane from Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, up to Baltimore. And uh, 13 years ago, I had a kidney transplant after years of being really sick with end-stage kidney disease. And so I, I talk quite a bit about medical ethics and organ transplantation. And uh, so I was on, I got on this plane, I sat down, somehow I got the middle seat, which is like death for me because I'm almost seven feet tall, so you can imagine my discomfort. And the lady who uh, was already sitting by the window had just put her headphones on, was turned away, was looking out the window, and the Lord said, bother her, you know, tap her on the shoulder. I'm an extrovert, I like to talk to strangers anyways, so... But I thought, oh, no, I'm going to leave her alone. She clearly doesn't want to talk. The guy next to me also had headphones on, was talking to his friend across the aisle. And so all through the preparations for the flight, the Lord keeps prompting me, talk to her, talk to her. And I'm like, no, no, Lord, I don't want to be rude and pushy. And so we, the flight takes off. It's a very short flight. Next thing you know, we're coming down. We land. We're taxiing to the runway. And we pass a huge luggage rack out on the tarmac, and there is a big box with a red cross on it. It says human organ. The lady turns to me, and she said, oh, look at that. That's what I do for a living. 
I said, what do you do for a living? She said, I coordinate organ transplants. Mm -hmm. You see the open door I would have had if I just started a conversation and said, so what do you do? I could have said, hey, I had a kidney transplant. Let's talk about this. And I pass that opportunity up. So a lot of it comes down to, am I ready when I have an opportunity? Am I willing to go out of my comfort zone and start a conversation with people? And that's what we're going to learn over the first two times here, is that apologetics really is simply conversational. Now, if you're an extrovert like me, you love meeting strangers. Put me in a room full of people like this. Man, I, I told my wife, I'll try to be home by midnight, but I want to talk. Uh, she's not. She's an introvert. She loves people, but she's not energized by, by meeting strangers. Um, but the truth is, yeah. The truth is, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, God has called us to be prepared. And what he has called us to do then, he said, be prepared to make a defense or give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason, there's a Greek word logos or logic, a good reason for the hope that is in you. Why do you believe what you believe? That's what we have to work on. Do I have good reasons for why I believe what we believe? And we'll talk about how to do that. Notice thirdly, we're told how to engage unbelievers. Peter goes on to say this, yet, and, and I think that it's an interesting word, yet. So do this, and Peter's perhaps anticipating people getting very antagonistic or combative. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Mm -hmm. There is never, never an occasion in a conversation with an unbeliever where it's appropriate to get angry. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes they'll make you mad. Yeah. A few years, about a year after I moved here, I, I became acquainted with the founder of the local Lancaster Free Thought Society, mm -hmm. the local atheist group. And uh, through some of my students, I met him. I began having him to come into my class at the end of every semester after I taught the students. And he would present his best case, case for atheism. And uh, before he did that at the end of every semester, we'd go out for coffee. And this guy, can I be honest with you, he's very annoying, very... <laughs> I did not enjoy having coffee with him. He was very antagonistic. He would never concede that I, that I made a, a point or that I was right. And I realized about the second or third year into our relationship, he's trying to convert me. It's like, and after, at the end of every time that we had coffee, I, I thought, you know, maybe this will be the last time we do this. I don't think I'm getting anywhere. And every time, that bugger would say, this was fun. Let's do this again. <laughs> and as long as the door is open, I should be prepared to do that. And he, nice. would, he would internally get me roiling, not because he had good arguments, but because he was so irritating. And I had to really work hard to say, no, remain calm. If he walks away thinking he won the argument, which I'm not trying to do, that's fine. I just want him to know that I care about him as a person. Mm -hmm. So I learned his kid's name. I learned his history and background. We, we knew each other for three years before he ever asked me a personal question about myself. So all the interest was one way. But that is how we are supposed to deal with unbelievers. Because we don't start arrogant confrontations. It grieves me when I see uh, videos on YouTube of people doing quote-unquote apologetics. And they're confronting people and getting them in a corner. and Come on, answer me. And I don't think that's what we're called to do. Now, in debate setting, that may be appropriate. But... Uh, this is where apologetics, unfortunately, sometimes attracts combative people. Mm. And they dive in, they study, and they're confronting people all, the, all over the place. Mm. I had a student one time, an older student years ago, that, as I was talking about, a very antagonistic unbeliever. 
He said, Dr. Farnham, how do you not just punch that guy right in the face? I said, that's not really an effective evangelism method to uh, punch someone in the face. So we don't start arrogant confrontations. Our goal is not to win an argument. If they walk away thinking they won the argument, it's okay, let it go, let it go. We'll talk about the appropriate metaphor in just a moment. Our goal is not to show our knowledge. And this is tempting when you start to learn more. Well, don't you know, and you begin to dive into philosophy or people that you've heard quotes. That's, that's not our goal. If, if the unbeliever walks away thinking, oh, those Christians are such simpletons, they don't know anything. It's, it's okay, let it go. Um, our goal is going to be, as we'll see in just a moment, to plant seeds of the gospel. So our goal is to lead them closer to Christ. Now, when I was, when I was learning evangelism growing up, we were taught, unless you close the sale and get that person to pray to receive Christ, you, you failed. You didn't do something right. You've got to go back and learn better techniques. We literally talked about shaking hands the appropriate strength, putting an arm around them, uh, making sure your breath didn't smell, so have a breath in. <laughs> like all these sales techniques, mm. because if you didn't close the sale, if they didn't crush Christ, then you didn't do something right. Mm. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for a moment. I want you to see the Bible's uh, illustration or metaphor for what we are supposed to do. 1 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 3. Notice beginning in verse 5. Uh, because in the book of Corinthians, the, the Corinthian Christians were uh, focused on Paul and Apollos and their celebrity status, which was a big thing in Greek culture. So Paul is trying to correct their image of him. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Now, notice the metaphor. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I'm going to tell you several things tonight that will relieve the pressure off you about witnessing. All you are called to do in any given situation is to go as far in the conversation as the unbeliever will let you go. That's all. They may cut you off right away. Hey, can I ask you about your religious beliefs or what you believe about God? No, I don't want to talk about it. That is a success. Why? Because you brought up God to them. And any person that closes you off right away, there's a reason for that. And the very fact that you try to talk to them, God can use that in their life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So don't worry if it doesn't go anywhere. It's still a success because you tried to broach the subject. But all I'm trying to do in every given situation is to go as far as I can. Uh, a few years ago, I took a group of LBC students over to uh, Oxford, England, and we did a study abroad trip for the month of July. And it was great. We lived in Oxford, saw where they shot Harry Potter and where C.S. Lewis lived and taught. It was, you know, total geeking out for, for <laughs> apologetics. And um, while we were there, we flew up to Edinburgh, Scotland overnight just to see that city. And on the, tr on the bus from the airport into the city, we sat next to the Scottish guy. And we got talking. I started asking him, what do we need to see in Edinburgh? We're only here for 24 hours. And all my students were sitting there listening, so I thought this would be a good time to share with them what I'd been teaching them about apologetics. So I said, so tell me, you know, um, he, was in, he was in the sciences. I said, uh, has your study of science led you closer to a belief in God or further away? I ask this all the time of medical doctors because I have a lot of medical issues. 
and a lot of them have never thought about that before. Mm -hmm. Did your study of medicine and science lead you more to a firmer belief in God or away? Mm -hmm. So he said, well, away, I don't believe in God at all. And I said, oh, why not? And we started talking, and I started bringing Christ into the situation, and just like that, he cut it off. He said, let me tell you something about Scotland. I wish I could do it in his accent, but I can't. <laughs> we don't talk about things like this in public. Mm. And I said, okay, you know, thank you very much. I appreciate all the suggestions you gave, and, and I let it go at that. Because I knew I had done my job. An hour later, we're checking into the hostel. If you know what a hostel is, it's like a dorm room in a city, and you don't know who you're going to get thrown in with. We had four girls with us, and then it was me and my son and my nephew. So I found a room with four beds, so the girls were tucked away safely. We had a four-person room, so I said, guys, we got to pray that it's a male staying with us because otherwise it's going to be a little awkward, uh, but that's the way hostels work. And uh, thankfully, it was a man. It was a Sikh from India, and he was there for a biochemistry conference. He was a scientist. <clears throat> and um, he checked in. We started talking. I said, tell me about Sikhism. And he said, tell me about Christianity. And we talked for over an hour. Mm. And I thought, what a contrast. The Scot did not want to talk about God at all because it was not appropriate. This Sikh from India was all in. Tell me about your. Tell me about who you think Jesus is. Mm -hmm. So all we're called to do is go as far as we can. So Paul says, Paul says, when you think of me, think of me as a person out there throwing out seeds. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to people. I'm trying to see is this person interested in spiritual things? Uh, can I bring up you know something about a lot of the Lois has seen me downtown Prince Street Cafe. I have a lot of conversations with unbelievers down there. You know, tell me about that sticker on your laptop. I'm getting ready to launch a new uh, evangelism initiative called Everyone Worship. So I got these new stickers. I got T-shirts coming. Connects them to a website. So I'll ask them about their T-shirt. Oh, you go to Millersville. Oh, what, what year are you in? And you know, um, uh, well, I wouldn't ask about a Christian T-shirt. I, I, when I'm in evangelism mode, I don't want to meet Christians. I just want to meet unbelievers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a Celtics fan. Just start conversations. Tell me about that skull tattoo with a snake coming through the eye holes, dripping with blood. That's very interesting. Does that have symbolism for you? you know, um, just start conversations with people, and we'll talk about this next time, how, how this, what this actually looks like. And look to plant seeds. Because notice what's next in the passage. This is where I find encouragement. Paul says, um, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So do I need to worry about the growth of the, of the seed of the gospel? No. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. Mm. See, this is, we need to stop thinking about evangelism this way. If I don't witness this person, they're going to go to hell, and I'll be stand before God someday, and there'll be blood on my hands. And, and this is how I witnessed most of my life till I learned apologetics guilt. I don't want there to be blood on my hands at the judgment, so I'm going to hand this person a track, and hopefully they don't ask me any questions, and my responsibility is over. Mm. No, this is the way we ought to think of salvation. God is doing a great work of saving in this world, yeah. salvation. He's saving people all over the world. And he says to you and me as his children, as his ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5, come be a part of this for your joy. Yeah. Amen. That's good. That changes everything, right? Yeah. When, I, when I meet someone, have an opportunity to witness, I know, as we'll learn in the next hour, God's already been working on them. And I'm just jumping into a conversation that's already going on. And God invites me. God has put this person. If it goes, if it goes, if it goes.
Praise God, I had this opportunity. Thank you, Lord. So Paul is saying, he who, water, he who plants and he who waters is not, we're, we're of no consequence. Because God can raise up stones, right? But he has called us to go and make disciples. Which means the pressure is not on me. It's not about me. God's doing work, but I get to participate from my joy. And then notice in verse um, 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. Sometimes you're the first person to ever begin to share the gospel with someone. Or you might be the person to share the gospel with them and they say, yeah, I, I need to be saved. And you're like, well, this is so easy. I don't know why I didn't do it before. <laughs> no, it's because you are, you may be last in the process. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Oh, wouldn't it be glorious if you and I began everywhere we went to start conversations with the people, plant seeds of the gospel, tell them about Christ. And someday when we stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, and, and Christ uh, reveals our works for him, not judging for our sin, we're, we're redeemed from that. And then there's a line of people waiting to talk to us. You shared the gospel with me once on the streets of Lancaster, and I blew you off. But you know what? A week later, something bad happened, and I went back to the center of Lancaster looking for you. And I met someone else, and they gave me the gospel of John. You witnessed to me at work, and I just showed no interest. And ten years later, things weren't so hot in my life, and someone else witnessed to me. And I thought, I think I've heard this before. I think my coworker tried to tell me about this ten years ago. I don't know about you, but I live for that. Yes. It's like I want there to be hundreds of people in heaven that I had a I had a part in. And maybe I don't here's the key. Maybe I don't personally lead anyone to Christ. It's not it's not the issue. Whereas when I was growing up, you know, it was notches in the belt, you know. We'd bring in the big time evangelists and they'd have twenty-five notches on their belt, people they led to Christ, and be like, Oh man, I wanna I want to win those people, so I'm going to become more persuasive, i.e. more manipulative, mm. more coercive, get them to pray a prayer, and then I can tell people I led them to Christ. It doesn't matter if you lead them in, into faith in Christ. What matters is you play the part that God has for you in their life at the time. And let the reward come later on. Let's keep moving for the sake of time. Finally, Peter says, lead an authentic life so your words are backed by action. And he says, so that when you are slandered, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That is a clear conscience indicates a lifestyle of repentance and humility. Brothers and sisters, it ought to just be a regular occasion that God brings us to conviction about our sin. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time distinctly the Spirit of God convicted you about some sin in your life and you said, yes, Lord, and you began to work on that, you began to forsake that sin, began to build new habits. If it's been more than a few months, you may not be as close to Christ as you think you are. Because this ought to be happening all the time. Through our own personal Bible study, through the preaching of the Word and the fellowship of the saints, through believers exhorting, admonishing, and encouraging me, I ought to just regularly, God showing me new things in my life I never saw before, say, oh, Lord, I never thought of that as displeasing, but now I'm coming to realize, you know, I'm kind of a control freak. Everything always has to be my way. Mm -hmm. Or I'm critical, and, and my first thought is always cynical and critical, and 
I shouldn't be. I should be discerning, but not critical. Or I, I have a I have a loose tongue. I gossip, or I take God's name in vain. I mean, a thousand things. I'm covetous. I scroll through my phone and look at all the wealthy people, and my heart's set on those things. Like regularly, the Spirit of God ought to be convicting us, drawing us to Christ. Because this will give you a clear conscience to share the gospel. You can say to an unbeliever, listen, God can deliver you from sin. Mm. And here how he's here's how he's delivered me from sin in my life. And he's still working on me. Mm. A clear conscience prevents unbelievers from rejecting the truth because of Christian hypocrisy. Mm. How many unbelievers, when you start to talk to them, say, don't tell me about Christianity. I have a neighbor who's a Christian. He dumps his trash in my yard. You know, um, he gets my mail sometimes. He just throws it away. You know, they're terrible neighbors. Or I have a coworker who's a Christian, and she lies and cheats. You know, she stole my idea, gave herself credit. Like, it's true that there are many hypocritical people who claim to be Christians. Let's not let our lives be a reason for people to reject the gospel of Christ. So this is what Peter calls us to do. Um, and the truth is, we can do all this through the power of Christ. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll come back for session two. Sure. Oh, I've got reform saves too on mine. Yeah. I was actually going to not work. Do they work? Do they work? Anybody ever ask you questions about it? Yeah, once. Uh, I just left them in a pile. I thought you guys were sitting on the floor back here. Because like you can just see like your eyes. It's like Emma and Hannah trying to sit at our table. You can like just see their eyes. Okay. Oh, you got water? I got water. Thank you. Need anything else? No, that's all I need. Okay. Oh. You try hitting it? Steven, you're yeah. familiar, I think, because I've seen you here before, man. Yeah, well, that and uh, my wife and I was in Oh, okay. So we, we Hi, first, I'm Rachel. Rachel. It's nice Rachel. To What's your last name? Welsh. Welsh. Yeah. yeah. My sister uh, is uh, Emily Phipps. Emily and Matt Phipps. They've gone to Calvary for a while. Steve Phipps sounds familiar. Yeah. But then we were actually in the small group. Oh, with Ryan. He's my only son. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How, how many years ago was that? Oh, it was a while, and it was really short. It was like right before they were getting ready to move. Uh, we know the Gregory's. The Gregory's lived just around the corner. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah, Ryan's good friends with Eric. Yeah, and then Eric and Jan are just like one block over. So we were together for like three months, none of like we're moving. We're like, that's right. I remember when he joined that group. Yeah. Yeah, and then we were like, oh, when we first started, we met in college, so we started going to Calvary because my sister yeah. was going there. Okay. So we went to Steve Moore's uh, uh, okay. Where were you in college? Uh, we were in E-Town. E -town. E -town. Okay. okay. So we went to Steve Moore's uh, Yeah. Which was, we miss Steve a lot. Oh, he's an amazing he's teacher. Yes. Yeah, and then we found out that this was a Two blocks away, we're like, oh, uh -huh. the church is open for two blocks from our house. So, do you come here now? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we've visited a few times. Yeah, it's so crazy. We wanted something like smaller in the city. We have two girls who are really And children. Oh, you're so young. Yeah. Who's watching them tonight? My mom. Oh, okay. They came in, this is the second time they came in to save us. Oh, that's so true. My father-in-law picked one up and gave it to me and put it in the car. And her mom's watching the kids. On Sunday nights, we watch our daughter's two kids, the one who lives in town, so they can work in their youth group at Grace Baptist in Millersville. Yeah. 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 So did you have graduation today? We did, but I wasn't there because my wife had a heart procedure yesterday, so I had to stay home with her today. Yeah, she's fine. Yeah, but you, she couldn't be left alone for 24 hours. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, she's expecting Yeah. Yeah, she will. Yeah. So nice to meet you. Thank you so much for your teaching. I'm a grad. Okay. Good to see you. Good to see you. I'm good. How's married life? married a year. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. No, August. Okay, so birthday September. Nine months. Nine months. Wow. Yeah, I see your pictures that's right. Now I remember that you were part of it. He actually told me that. Oh, yeah. I go there every year. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Our church. Yeah. Where we meet was it Banner Truth Town last year? I'm like a failure. No, I don't. Banner Truth Conference. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Do you need me? Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Romans 1 as we go through this session. This session covers probably the most significant thing I learned while learning apologetics. When we got to this lesson, this for me changed everything. And the reason was it helped me to see how God views the unbeliever or God's analysis or diagnosis of the unbeliever's heart and mind. Uh, I had always thought in order to get through to someone who's not already at least Roman Catholic or liberal Protestant, I have to prove God exists to them, and that just seems impossible. Uh, how do you do that? Uh, Romans 1 tells us we don't have to do that, and really, uh, for a lot of the effort that's been put into seeking to prove God exists purely by philosophy, uh, if you've ever read classical apologetics that go deep into philosophical issues, uh, quite frankly, you don't need to. You just don't need to do that. Uh, it has some benefit for people to have deeper questions, but to prove God exists, you do not need that. We'll talk about that as we go. So let's start with Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read through part of this and explain it as we go. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, I, I heard this passage taught many times in the years I was growing up and uh, even probably taught it when I was a pastor but never really paid attention to what it was saying it says God's wrath has been revealed so if God reveals something to the world do you think they know it yeah so what this is saying is every unbeliever think of the unbelievers you know God says they know that God is holy that they have sinned and someday they will stand 
in judgment for their sin. That's what God says. So even if you meet someone who says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in future judgment, what they're doing is the second half of this verse, they are suppressing that truth. And we'll, we'll expand on this in just a moment. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, crystal clear. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. God's invisible attributes cannot be seen with the human eye, are clearly understood by unbelievers. I hope this is starting to shake up your world a little bit, because God says this is true of every unbeliever. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, that is, this is God's world, Everything in it speaks of either God's glory in creating it or the effects of the fall. So that knowledge of God is inescapable to the unbeliever. So, the end of verse 20, they are without excuse. That's powerful. No one can ever say to God, I didn't, I didn't know you existed. How can you hold me accountable? Uh, the famous uh, atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell, who lived for most of the 20th century, uh, it was an ardent atheistic philosopher. One time was asked in a television interview, um, Mr. Russell, what happens if someday you die and it turns out that God is real and you wake up and, and you're before God and, and God holds you accountable? What will you say to him? And Russell's response was, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. <laughs> but Romans 1.20 says he will not say that. Because God says every person is without excuse. Verse 21, here it is again. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So let's dive into this. Notice, first of all, God says... God says every unbeliever already knows that he exists and knows some things about him. This is important. Every unbeliever I meet knows God. Now, this is very important. Some apologetics approaches will tell you everyone has the capacity to know God, but they don't necessarily know him. Or they know that there is a God, but they don't know the one true God. What does the scripture say? Mm -hmm. Everyone knows the true God. Well, if everyone knows the true God, then why don't they worship him? Because everyone knows God either in a relationship of grace, if you're in Christ, or a relationship of wrath. And it is a personal relationship. In other words, the unbeliever rebelling against God or shaking their fists in God's face, it's personal. It's not business. It's personal. So everyone I meet, if they've not been redeemed by Christ, they are well aware of their guilt before God, and it is a personal relationship of wrath. And the knowledge of God's wrath weighs on them every day. That's good. Yeah. So how do people know God? I've asked uh, Christians say, how can you say that they know God? Because every person's made in the image of God. Right. So part of it is... They are undeniably made as human beings, and this makes us different from animals. We are made to image God, to reflect God's glory. It's just kind of like if you know someone and they're the spitting image of their parents, right? And you were to say, you must be so-and-so's kid. No, I don't know who that is. Like, you know they're lying, because they look just like their parents. 
thankfully, my son doesn't look just like me, but I've had multiple occasions people say, I, I think I met your son. I say, why do you think that? Because when he opened his mouth and talked, he sounded just like you. <laughs> I said, poor kid. It's true. He does. In the same way, every unbeliever as a human being is made in God's image, and no matter how much they seek to deface that, they cannot fully deface it. Secondly, we're told every person has this implanted knowledge of God. Five times in Romans 1, we're told that people know God. In other words, part of being made in God's image is this idea that we know him inescapably. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll see what people do with that in just a moment. What do they know? Well, the text says they know the holy nature of God and his wrath against sin. That's what they know. People know they're guilty. There's a great missions book out there called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. Uh, he was a missiologist who traveled the world and studied, he was an anthropologist, studied different tribal groups in the Amazon, different people groups all around the world, and he said, wherever I go, there's a common theme where people, regardless of their experience or, or exposure or non-exposure to Christianity, know that they have to atone for their sin. So he shared the story of one tribe in the Amazon River Basin where every year on a certain date they'd build a raft, put all these goods on there, fruits, vegetables, live chickens, and they'd float it down the river to the river god. Why? Because they knew they had to make atonement for their wrong. Mm. So this idea of making atonement is universal. We cannot escape it. Mm. <clears throat> Secondly, this knowledge, we're told in verse 20, makes the unbeliever without excuse before God. There's also been amazing missiology stories of missionaries going to a tribe or to a people that have never been reached by the gospel. And, and when they get there, the person or the, the leader, the elder of the tribe, saying, we've been waiting for you. It's like, what do you mean waiting for me? We've been waiting for someone to come tell us that which we generally know is true. So the idea there is that no one can say, uh, that I didn't know about God. Romans 2 reminds us that the, the Gentiles, when they do what's required by the law and they don't even have the law, shows the law written on their hearts. So again, think of the people that you know. God says they know uh, that they're guilty and it is a personal relationship with God. So what does it mean to be without excuse? There's a person talking to their doctor. She says, I have metal fillings in my teeth. My refrigerator magnets keep pulling me into the kitchen. That's why I can't lose weight. Okay? <laughs> uh, not a good excuse, right? <laughs> well, no matter what excuse the unbeliever gives to God on Judgment Day will not be acceptable. Uh, as a college professor, I've heard them all, the excuses. Some students have had six aunts die in one semester, and that keeps them from turning in their assignments together or their car all four tires at different times have gone flat and their car's broken down you hear it all you hear all the excuses and uh, as I warned them at the beginning of the semester right Abby and Brian uh, if you have a genuine reason then I'm willing to listen but if you have an excuse go tell it to someone else because I don't want to hear about it right you muster in your work on time so what are we told then at the end of verse 18? Every unbeliever suppresses the knowledge of God in an attempt to escape the accountability. God says at the end of verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Calvin says the knowledge of God bubbles up in us every day. So again, think about the unbelievers you know. God says they're well aware of God's wrath against sin. That knowledge of God bubbles it 
up in them every day. And in order to deal with life, they have to push that down. Mm -hmm. To suppress something means to push down or hold back that which is trying to rise to the surface. So remember when you were a kid and you went to the pool or the lake and you try to hold a ball underwater? And the more you push it down, the more it wants to come flying up out of the water. This is what God says the unbeliever is doing every day, suppressing that knowledge of God. Um, just think about this. I, mean, I think we've all had this experience where you're going through your day, you feel fine, and then suddenly you get this wave of nausea, right? Your stomach suddenly goes brrr, and it's like, oh, that didn't feel good. And maybe I ate something bad. You either get food poisoning or coming down with a stomach virus. And then a little while later, another wave of nausea, right? And it starts coming stronger and stronger. What are you trying to do? Nope, not going there. Not going to worship at the porcelain Honda. I'm not going to. Not going there. What do you mind over matter? And you know, it usually happens to me like when I'm going to bed and I wake up in the middle of the night, waves of nausea, and you're just trying to choke it down, right? Push it down. And eventually, what happens? Well, it usually comes up. You can't push it down. God says every unbeliever is trying to suppress this knowledge of God, this knowledge of their guilt, mm. and it's constantly rising up in them. Mm. And when you suppress knowledge, you suppress the truth long enough, it leads to self-deception. Mm. So here's a picture of me looking in the mirror. I still think I'm, <clears throat> let's see, my peak was about 26. I was really into weightlifting and uh, had very little body fat. My metabolism hadn't changed, and that's the way I still think I look when I look in the mirror. <laughs> well, it's self-deception. And any person who is deceiving themselves by suppressing that knowledge of God long enough is going to deceive themselves. What do they say? I'm a good person. <laughs> they know they're not. The man upstairs and I have an agreement. I'm okay. <laughs> they know that's not the case, and yet they deceive themselves. George Orwell, who wrote 1984, said, We are all capable of believing things which we know to be untrue. And then when we are finally proved wrong, impudently twisting the facts so as to show that we were right. Intellectually, it's possible to carry on this process for an indefinite time. Mm -hmm. The only check on it is that sooner or later, a false belief bumps up against solid reality, usually on a battlefield. Mm -hmm. So you can deny reality, but at some point you're going to be confronted with it, and you won't be able to escape it anymore. Additionally, when people suppress the truth, it leads to irrationality. They begin to believe things that are clearly not true, that no rational person should believe. So here's Thomas Nagel, uh, professor of law and philosophy at New York University. He writes in one of his books, um, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. Mm. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Mm. Yeah, misery loves company. That's right. One thing I love about Thomas Nagel is he says things all the time in the book that other atheists are like, shh, don't say that. We don't want people to know that. But he's brutally honest. He said, I don't want, I don't want there to be a God. Well, there, there is the suppression of the truth of God where someone is, you know, a scientist like him ought to be saying, whatever the evidence, you know, wherever the evidence leads. But here he's showing the heart of man. Here's another example. A few years ago, I was doing a conference up above Reading, 
and a man came up to me afterward. He said, I've been a science teacher for more than 35 years. And he said, the standard biochemistry textbook in all colleges and universities in America is one by Albert Leninger. And he said, it's a brilliant book. It's been revised many times, but it's Leninger's work. At the end of this book, this thousand-page book, on page 1053, he's concluding the book, and he said, there is yet no satisfactory model or theory for the origin of the genetic code. That is, where, where did everything come from? Brilliant man. But he says, when we talk about origins, there's no good explanation yet. He says, indeed, Crick and Orgel have pointed out that it's not beyond reasonable possibility that genes and the genetic code may have been brought to Earth by, anybody want to guess? Aliens. Spaceship. <laughs> From some other body in the universe where intelligent life had already evolved. And then he admits, of course, this idea is no answer to the problem since one must then explain how life arose elsewhere. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant in the sciences, but whenever he leaves that, which happens a lot with scientists, they leave their field of expertise. Richard Dawkins is exhibit A in his book, The God Delusion. Brilliant scientist, and as soon as he departs from science, he just makes a fool of himself. Mm. Why would this man believe in aliens when there is zero evidence for it? Because anything but God. See, that's the irrationality. And then thirdly, suppressing the knowledge of God leads to idolatry. As we're told in Romans 1, uh, 22 here, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged. They cashed out the truth of God, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Notice the decline in dignity. People worship human beings. And birds, which in the ancient world were higher than anything else, because they could see, they had a, a view that even human beings couldn't attain. Animals, and notice the last thing, creeping things. Here's the principle. The more a person suppresses the truth of God that they know, the more they uh, harm their own dignity. The more they uh, cut into their own sense of uh, distinctness as a, as a created being in God's image. Mm -hmm. They diminish themselves, they demean themselves. Maybe you've seen the pictures on the internet of people who are uh, doing body modification look like animals, lions or lizards or things like wow. that. There's a guy named Anthony Lafredo that had his whole body tattooed with scales, mm -hmm. had his tongue split, had um, inserts in his eyes to have like snake-like eyes, and had little horns inserted underneath the skin in his head. Like that is a severe suppression which destroys the dignity. Uh, and it, in June, we'll talk about uh, transgenderism. Transgenderism is a suppression of the truth of how God made us and an attempt mm -hmm. to deface that, and yet there's nothing you can do to actually make yourself become a different gender. Mm -hmm. And it turns into idolatry where I must have what I want. Mm -hmm. right. Idolatry can be defined in three ways. It's that which gives me dignity and, and significance, that which shapes my entire identity, and that which, if it was taken away, would make life feel like it's not worth living. And we could take any good thing. Marriage can become idolatrous. Having children can become idolatrous. Having your children uh, obey and be presentable can be an idol. Money, job, career, uh, love, uh, possessions, anything like that can become an idol. And that's why at the end of 1 John 5, John finishes his letter to... Uh, his reader is saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. Because even as Christians, we can become idolaters. Mm -hmm. 
Where is your hope? Where is your identity? Uh, if everything was taken away, would you still have the core of who you are? If, you're, if your husband or wife walked out on you, you lost your job, we're homeless, would you still know who you are? Yes, it would be terrible. But who you are wouldn't be able to change if Christ is your God. Yeah. There's a famous uh, author, David Foster Wallace. Many people said this guy is the next great American novelist. In a commencement speech in 2005, he said this. He's, as a lifelong atheist, he said this. Shocked a lot of people. There's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. So I'm, I'm uh, launching this new evangelism tool called everyoneworships.org. There'll be a website. I've got T-shirts and stickers as conversation starters with unbelievers. And it's, this comes from his quote here because it's a famous quote. As a lifelong atheist, he said, there's no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. Mm. He goes on to say, the only choice we get is what to worship. Mm. If you worship money and things, if they, where you are, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Mm. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's incredible insight from a guy who didn't know Christ. And sadly, shortly after he gave this address, he took his life. So he was this close. And right after this quote, he's... He said, the strange thing is, we all know this already. That's what he said. We already know this mm. to be true. So again, when you're talking to an unbeliever, realize as they suppress their truth, there is something in their life that is giving them identity, that is helping them find their significance. All their hope is in it. So as I'm talking to them, we'll get to the practical next time we meet, I'm seeking to ask questions to figure out, what is this person's life all about? So I've talked to wealthy people and poor people who say, it's all about the money. I'm trying to make it financially. I'm trying to find security, trying to own that nice car. And everything is about money. And if they don't attain it, their life will feel like nothing. For other people, it's, you know, I'm trying to find love. And all their effort is into that. For other people, it's, you know, I've got to win my parents' approval. Oh, you know, do your parents not approve of you? Oh, they've been dead for a long time. I'm still trying to make them proud. Like these things, which are good in and of themselves, can drive us to uh, complete idolatry. So several exchanges take place here in this passage. Three exchanges, we're told. The unbeliever exchanges the glory of God for an image, the truth of God for a lie, and what is natural for what is unnatural. So the first exchange is this. The unbeliever exchanges the real for the fake. Uh, about 15 years ago, I, I went to China. And uh, we were part of a group of um, Christian churches and seminaries who were trying to get into China to help train leaders in the underground church because they did not have any Bible training. So they said, we want to send someone over as kind of a test balloon to see. Um, you're going to be meeting in secret and in private with um, Chinese uh, believers in the underground church. So who do they send? Seven-foot white guy. 
Yeah, you send me. Um, and I said, are you sure you want me? Yeah, we just got to see if it's going to work. So I, I went over there. Everywhere I went, people would be like, oh, you know, like this. I was even sitting in a taxi cab one time, so I wasn't even standing up. And a bus pulled up next to me, and I looked up to the bus, and, and a person looked down, turned back, and then went like this. And then they started doing this to everyone on the bus. <laughs> like I stood out like a sore thumb and uh, had this great opportunity to teach in the underground church. I'm sure the authorities knew what I was doing the whole time because everywhere I went I made a scene. This is almost 20 years ago, so these days it probably wouldn't make as big a scene, but back in those days it did. Hmm. But while I was there, I went shopping and I bought a Rolex in China. It's weird. They're only twenty dollars there. They're like twenty thousand here, and uh, it was a beautiful watch. Um, I came home and everyone commented on what a nice watch it was, and I loved it. I thought this is so awesome. Until the first time I got it wet, and I, within an hour, the the face had steamed up and you couldn't really see much of anything. So I thought, well, maybe it'll dry out overnight. And, so I took it off, put it on my dresser. Next morning, I woke up, and the, the minute hand was floating in the bottom of the face. <laughs> Why? Because it wasn't a real Rolex. It looked real, but it was a fake. Right. And what every unbeliever does then is, in suppressing this knowledge of God, they find something else to worship. Mm -hmm. And they find their identity that they put all their hope in that thing. Hmm. I think about my next door neighbor, my wife and I have been trying to reach them for uh, since we've lived there 10 years. Uh, they're Roman Catholic. Um, this woman loved her dog so much. When we first moved, he was a puppy, golden retriever puppy. She was a puppy. And she died last year. And this woman, anytime you bring it up, still comes to tears and breaks down for some reason. And, and I, you know, dogs are good, and I understand people's attachment to them. I'm not a dog person myself. But two of my kids have dogs, and so I become a grandparent to dogs. Um, and she is, to this day, she can't even talk about the death of this dog. Uh, why? Because this dog became for her more than just a pet. It became a, a companion and a source of identity. Every unbeliever does that with something in their life. So in my conversation with them, I want to try to figure out, in what way has this person replaced God with, with something else? Notice also the unbeliever, we're told in the next few verses, exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Mm -hmm. So unbelievers take the truth of God and they find a counterfeit, a lie. If you've ever wondered, why do we have so many religions in the world? Where'd they come from? Someone might even ask you this. It's because back beginning with Cain, when Adam and Eve sinned and they began to reject the truth of God, people took the knowledge of God that they had and they began to form other gods, their own view of God. Right? A God that can be pleased with my works. So I don't have to stand before a holy God and confess, I am guilty and I deserve your wrath. Oh, if I can construct a God that will accept my good works, my sacrifices, and I can be accepted then, that's t less terrifying. Every world religion that's come along has been a counterfeit where they all contain some elements of truth, but have been concocted or created or developed over time in an effort to create a religion where I can do something to become enlightened, to appease the gods, 
and therefore I don't have to stand in abject fear. Mm -hmm. However, the exchange is now they've lost any ability in this lifetime to know during this lifetime if they've done enough. You know, whether it's in Islam or Roman Catholicism or Judaism, you don't know if you've done enough. In Islam, very clearly, you will be your good works will be weighed with your bad. And what happens if you live your whole life and you missed it by one good work? Having grown up in a Catholic family, Catholicism, you live in abject fear of God and you live with guilt all the time. Either that or you become self-righteous and you think I'm doing fine. But you cannot know. So most people would rather have a religion where they can do something to earn God's favor or become enlightened on their own so they don't have to live in that kind of fear because they can do something. The gospel says, I must stand before a holy God and confess I am guilty and I deserve nothing from you. However, the gospel also says salvation is given as a free gift and we can have knowledge and assurance in this life, not now that we've been made right with God. Amen. The third exchange, we're told, the unbeliever exchanges the natural for the unnatural. So we're told in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Three times in this passage, God gives them up, and the word literally means hands them over to bondage. God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange, there's the third exchange, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So this passage is not saying homosexuality is the worst sin. It's saying it is the most obvious exchange for what is clearly what nature teaches us ought to be, sexual relations between a man and a woman. Giving that up for what is contrary to nature. In nature, you cannot produce offspring if you have two males or two females. And God says people in their rejection of the truth of God will do things that are clearly unnatural because they do, want, do not want to live according to God's description of what is natural. And that is a third attempt then to suppress that knowledge of God. So notice then all of this is part of what an unbeliever puts together a system of belief called a worldview. And I'm sure you've heard that before. People have worldviews they live by. An atheistic worldview, an Eastern religious worldview, um, a, uh, a Western secular worldview, an Islamic worldview, a Jewish worldview. They develop, and what is a worldview? It answers the basic questions of life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's my identity? Where am I going? What's wrong with the world? What will make it right? Everyone believes something about these things. And a worldview is more than just an intellectual thing. It is a fundamental orientation of the heart. That is, people are committed to their worldview, unless the Spirit of God is working in them. And it's, it's beliefs about the basic constitution of reality. What is God like? Why am I here? Who am I? What's wrong with the world? Everyone believes something about these things. And therefore, as we, we'll get into next time, in conversation, we want to ask them questions about this thing, about these things. This has happened to me before. You know, something terrible happens in the news, and I'm getting my hair cut, or I'm seeing a doctor, and they said, you hear about that thing that happened? Boy, mm. our world's messed up. Oh, open door. Mm. Ask them a question. We're going to learn that next time. Our biggest problem is we always want to talk. 
non-believers, we don't want to ask questions. We need to reverse that. Put the, put the emphasis or put the pressure on them. Why do you think people do that? What do you think is wrong with the world? What do you think is going to make it right? We're going to talk about that next time. Takes all the pressure off of you. Let them talk. Let them share. And they will work themselves into a corner. And that's where, as a Christian, you can step in and say, well, you're right about this, or I agree with you about this, but what about this here? Mm. This, however, tells me what God says is going on in the heart and mind of every unbeliever. So let me conclude by just saying this. <clears throat> so what do you say if someone asks you or, or says to you, prove God exists to me? very easy out for this okay someone says and it's not original with me someone says prove god exists to me i'm going to ask questions i'm going to ask them what would it take to prove god exists right did you ever play four square in elementary school in the playground mm -hmm. big square divided into fours yep. and the goal is you you bounce the ball you push it into someone else's square bounces they push it into someone else's square think of your your conversation with unbelievers as my goal is to always put the ball back in their court so prove God exists to me, my response is going to be, what, is it going to, what does it take to prove God exists to you? Mm. About half the time, people have said, that's a good question. I've never thought about that. <laughs> Other times, people will say, well, I don't know. I would want God to appear to me in some way that I know he was real. Okay, well, what would he look like, and what would he have to say or do to make you believe in him? Again, about half the time, they'll say, I don't know. Even, they might even be honest, like my friend in the Free Thought Society, and say, there's nothing you could show me that would prove God exists. Okay, so now I know you're closed-minded. You don't want to hear about this at all. But most people would say, well, I don't know. I would want God to appear to me in some way and do something that I would know is supernatural. I'm so glad you said that. Can we go to the Gospels and see where God did exactly that? Right. So Jesus came, and he didn't just appear to one person. He lived and moved at the crossroads of the Roman Empire. He was a public figure. He performed miracles that even the enemies didn't deny that he did. So what do you know about Jesus? So you move from this impossible challenge, prove God exists, right down to, would you look at the Gospels with me to see who Jesus is? And this whole approach we're going to learn, we're going to dive into it next time, the practical, is to bypass all the wonderful philosophy and difficult arguments that apologists make and get right to the heart of this person who knows God and is suppressing the truth of God. And I know that they're doing that, and I'm going to seek to ask questions to draw out their beliefs and let them see for themselves if they're irrational, contradictory, or unlivable. And then as their worldview starts to crumble as they tell me about it, I'm going to present Christ in all his glory and rationality. Mm. And they're going to be faced with this contrast between their inability to give explanations for the questions that every person has asked since the beginning of time and the rationality and beauty of the Christian answer. And this is a powerful way to engage our so we got time for a few questions. Again, next time we meet, we're going to get into the practice.